Well, that was awkward. <laughs> it, it's, the, it's the right thing to do. And if I was Dion or Jeff or Doug, Tracy, all the, Julie, all the people that were involved, I, I would have done that for somebody else. But maybe it's just my sinful ego. You know, I'd rather not have that done for me. And, uh, and yet I, I appreciate uh, how I have been honored. And you guys have done an incredible job of that. And um, the ministry uh, for 30 years has done an incredible job of that. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It's kind of interesting to me that we've just completed a series called The Promises of God. You know, the six unbreakable promises of God. There, there's a seventh one that we're talking about today, and that's that God wants to do greater things. He, he truly wants to do greater things. And I was talking to Dion before the message last night, Saturday, and I, I said, you know, the one thing that I've come to realize is that God wants to do greater things through all people, not just believers, but even non-believers. The blessing of a believer is that we know it. We know it's from God. And uh, even if it happens to a non-believer, it still serves God's purpose because they know in their heart that this is beyond them. And, and they're made to be curious about it. And that's what God loves to do is to make us curious and, and make us dig deeper. And uh, I found that to be true. This is a promise that Jesus himself makes. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. I mean, Jesus preached to Hundreds, maybe a thousand at a time, but through live stream or through modern technology, internet, greater things can be done than these. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. It confuses us. You know, we look at ourselves and we say, you know, how did that happen? As you look back on 30 years of ministry, it's just, it's boggling what God has done. And that's a good thing, uh, to be humbled by all of that. Do you, do you recognize this picture of this guy here? Do you know who he is? You'd have to, you'd have to been rocking out in the 70s and 80s, you know. That's Billy Joel, Billy Joel. Billy Joel was born into a Jewish family. Can you tell I just read another biography? You know. <laughs> Billy Joel, the life and times of an angry young man. Just kind of fun, you know, because... Uh, those cassettes were always our go-to cassettes whenever we did road trips. And so all my kids could sing his songs by heart as well. And um, he was born into a Jewish family. In fact, his, his grandfather had to flee Germany uh, because of his Jewish heritage. He had to sell a factory that he had there, a textile factory, for pennies on the dollar, fled to Cuba, and eventually came to uh, New York where Billy was born in Brooklyn. They weren't really uh, strong in their Jewish faith. In fact, his mother after his dad abandoned the family when he was just age seven, his mother had him baptized as a Christian. And, and here's so typical of, of Christian churches and how we can offend. Because one day that pastor, after he had been baptized and they were growing in the faith, uh, held up a dollar bill and he said, this is the Jewish flag. His family never went back to church. You know, it's, it's so easy to offend. Why can't we just be inclusive and accepting of people and, and help people come to the knowledge of God's love for them, no matter what their heritage, no matter what their background. That's what we try to do in this place. And I love this place for that. 
So anyway, Billy uh, was blessed, and you know, we all know his history, that uh, he actually uh, worked his way up through a garage band, uh, became known in, in uh, the city of New York, and then beyond New York, and by the time he was finished with his songwriting, uh, he had written 33 major hits, many of them number one, 150 million albums uh, had been uh, sold under his name, multi-millionaire now, and uh, 23 Grammy nominations, uh, almost a dozen that he won, including Best Album, Singer of the Year, Song of the Year, and on and on and on, Legendary Legacy Awards as well. But it's always confused him. He said, to receive honor and praise has always been puzzling to me. I don't feel that I ever belong in limos or a private jet or a stage with people cheering for me. But I know that believing that is what has kept me grounded because I'm just a boy from Levittown. Just a boy from Levittown. He laughs as he walks through his mansion, you know, out in the Hamptons. He goes, I don't, I don't belong here. I'm a working boy. You know, and that's, that's how he feels. I, I can relate to that part of this guy. You know, I grew up in a similar fashion. My folks were somewhat impoverished. It was true that we had our utilities turned off for non-payment a few times. <laughs> My dad was trying to make ends meet. He sanded floors for a living. In fact, I remember running the edger because you had to get on your hands and knees and run the edger around the hardwood floors that he would do. And he was good at his business, but uh, good at his skill, but bad at his business. He, he had a lot of people owing him money, dodging him, and so he finally went to work for a factory. But uh, this is our family. There are five kids in this picture. This is obviously my picture here, but uh, there were two more that would be born. My mom is carrying uh, in this picture my younger brother, uh, James, and then Carla would be born even after that. So there were seven of us in the family. And, and when I think back to you know, where God has brought me to this point, uh, I didn't have the right, you know, legacy. You know, I, I, I didn't have the right, you know, training to be what most pastors and teachers would be. You know, the pedigree was all wrong. Uh, when I went on to, uh, to seminary or to, to prep for ministry, I'd look around the room and I'd say, man, I, I just don't belong with these people. These people are different than me. They're much more sophisticated than me. This is a picture of Caroline. I think it was our first year at the seminary. And, uh, you know, I was faking it pretty well. I was cleaned up and, and, and looking better at that point. But I was more comfortable still in a jean jacket than in a sport coat. Still am. And um, I, I think of myself, when I saw the movie Goodwill Hunting, I thought of that Matt Damon character, you know, laden with potential. But, you know, it was somehow all messed up with his culture and his environment that he was raised in. You know, he cursed, he drank. He participated in various levels of mischief, uh, and, and we did the same. Nothing illegal. Well, some things were illegal, uh, <laughs> but nothing grossly immoral, but certainly not, you know, pastor material, not what you would think would be pastor material. Uh, never pious enough. You know, I'd look around my classmates and, you know, uh, 
when they worshipped and, and, and even later as we became professionals and they loved the clerical garb. I always felt uncomfortable with all that. Uh, I've never been very pious to the consternation of my congregation for the most part. And uh, if, you've, if you were on my uh, fantasy football league uh, emails, uh, you would know that you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement before you're allowed to join because, you know, the pastors are in there and, and, and we sometimes give each other a really hard time and probably not in the most Christian way. Growing up, I was taught to respect pastors, although I never wanted to become one. I remember in my teenage years, my, my pastor at that time uh, had a nervous breakdown. Now, why would a pastor ever have a nervous breakdown? People are so kind to their pastors, you know, but I love tongue-in-cheek, have you noticed? And, and, uh, and after he'd give communion, his hands would shake so badly that it looked like manna had fallen behind the communion rail, you know, and, and, uh, and people were making fun. And I remember one of my sisters said something like, I think pastor's losing it. And my mom got right in her face and said, that's your pastor. You will never disrespect your pastor. And so I was raised with that kind of appreciation and respect for pastors. We always went to church, but I never wanted to become one. I, I thought pastors were kind of on the spectrum, kind of on the sissy end of the spectrum and kind of on the nerdy end of the spectrum. And my dad was a man's man and I wanted to be like my daddy. You know, I was more inclined towards sports and hunting and fishing and camping and even manual labor that he did because that's what a man does. But much to my surprise, despite my aberrant behavior, despite my dysfunctional background, God thought I was perfectly positioned to make an impact, you know, among his people. It took me a long time to realize it, but uh, God has done that. And uh, I want to jump off on the basis of this passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, to see that Paul understood this. And so I resonate with Paul, what Paul has to say in these words. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. You know, think of your background. Think of who you are. You know, when God chose you and said, I want you to be my child. Not many of you were wise, not by the world's standards, not many were influential. He didn't say, well, I'm going to bring that person in the church because they've got gifts, you know, they've got influence and, and they'll be perfect for me. He doesn't work that way. That's not his method of operation. Not many were of noble birth. Now, God chooses foolish things to shame the wise. God chooses weak things to shame what the world calls strong God chooses lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. This is his method of operation so that no one could boast before him. I certainly can't boast before him knowing you know, how he found me and how he took me and used me. And other people who know me when I go home just can't believe it either. You know. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. Not only that, he's become our righteousness, our perfection. He's made us holy and he's redeemed us. He's done all that. We didn't do it. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Paul could write these words with integrity and he could write them in a heartfelt manner because Paul understood that to be true about him. You know, in fact, if there was a vote taken, I think Paul would have been voted 
least likely to become the MVP of Christian leaders in the first century. You would have never chosen Paul to be the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. Never would have chosen Paul. In fact, when we first meet Paul, it's in Acts chapter 7. At the stoning or the martyrdom, the murder of the first Christian leader. You see, there were Jewish people who believed that it wasn't enough to put Jesus on the cross. You had to also put to death all of his followers. This sect that taught that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah had to be squashed. And everyone who preached that had to be put to death. And Stephen was their first target, an outspoken advocate for Christ in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that when they had driven Stephen out of the city... They began to stone him, and those who were doing it laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul. And then it adds these words, and Paul was in hearty agreement with what they were doing. The last guy that would ever say, hey, I want this guy to be the Christian leader, you know, for the first century church. In fact, I I think he would have been the white supremacist at Charlottesville, Virginia, And you would say, hey, I think he would make a great guy to advocate for civil rights in America. That's just how odd it was that God would choose Paul, a murderer of Christians, to become a Christian leader. In Acts chapter 9, as the story unwinds, it says, And Paul, breathing threats and plotting murder against the followers of Jesus, went to the high priest and asked for authority to go arrest more and put more to death. And God said, I I think I'll choose Paul to be my apostle. And so while Paul was on the road to Damascus to put more Christians to death, more Christians in chains, Jesus met him on the road in a bright shining light that blinded him, knocked him off his horse. And then a voice from heaven said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you that I am persecuting? He says, I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am your savior. Paul didn't know that to be true. In fact, he rejected that as truth, but he was blinded and he was led by those who were with him uh, to the house of a man who cared for him in his blindness until God sent to him a follower of Jesus to explain to Paul who Jesus was. And Paul became convinced by the Holy Spirit that that was true. And, and, And another fascinating thing about Paul is it says then, that Paul, because he had been trained so deeply in the Jewish faith, in fact, he was, he was succeeding at a far greater pace than all of his contemporaries. It says that Paul was able to prove from the Old Testament, prove because the prophecies and, and Paul's knowledge of it so much, he was able to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus was the Christ based on their own scripture. And you say, okay, now it makes sense. Paul's gonna be a strong advocate for Jesus to the Jewish people. And God said, no, Paul. That would be easy for you. I'm going to make you an apostle to Gentiles. (laughs) Paul must have said, I hate Gentiles. I've been against Gentiles. I wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. I won't go to a Gentile's house. And you want me to be a witness to the Gentiles? In his weakness, God would make him strong. So that Paul would later write about himself, just kind of a Billy Joel comment or Billy Joel commenting on Paul. Here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But then he goes on to explain, and this is why he chose me, to show mercy, 
so that in my life as chief of sinners, Christ might display his attitudes, his immense patience as an example for others who would come to believe and find eternal life. God loves to choose foolish people. He loves to choose weak people. You know, to make it obvious that this is God's doing. If God could save Paul, a murderer of Christians, and make him a leader in the church, then what have I done that God could not choose me? This is the way God works. In our weaknesses, God demonstrates his strength. In our foolishness, in his foolishness, we find wisdom. As I reflect on these 30 years of ministry in this place, uh, I just want to share with you 10 axioms, 10 things that seem foolish to the world that I have found to be wise, and 10 things that the world might see as weak that I have found to be strong. Number one, the church is not the mission. It is accomplished by God to accomplish the mission. The mission is lost people. We as Christians are not the end. We are the means to the end. The end are those who still need to know what we have come to know and believe. That's that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. But this is contrary to what we're taught, contrary to what most churches believe and what most churches want, to be honest with you. You know, when I was at the seminary, they said, this is your church, go out and be the shepherd of this church, take care of your church, and they will take care of you, and that's true. If a pastor takes care of his church, and, and he preaches to the needs of his church, his church will love him, and he will love them, and the church will be in decline, and no one will know why. Because that's not the purpose of the church. The church has a greater purpose than that. The church is to reach beyond itself into the lives of lost people. And when you begin to expect that from your church, your church says, what about us? What about us? What about the music we love? What about the things that we love? What about the way we want things to be done? You say, you know, it's really not about you. I might even like some of the things that you like. But I'm willing to set aside the things that I like for the things that the world might like so that I might be able to have a conversation with the world. You know, that's what God would have us do because we are not the mission. We are uh, gathered by God to accomplish the mission. The mission is lost people. Or this one seems a little silly, really. Hurting people hurt people. But it's true, and it took me a while to realize that, that, that people who were, uh, you know, angry and people who were upset and people who were... Uh, you know, attacking, uh, usually had issues in their own lives. And, and if instead of responding to the behavior, I could respond to the heart, that would be wise and that would be strong. Seems foolish to avail yourself to that way. But the Bible says, in as much as it is possible with you, live at peace with all people. We've often said to our staff, if, if we believe what they believe, if we've heard what they've heard, it may be a lie, but it, they've heard it and they believe it. They heard it from a reputable person. And if we were of the same mind that they were, we might have the same opinion. You know, so let's be tolerant. Let's, let's realize that they are hurting and, and try to get past their behavior to their hurt and minister to them as Christ would. Third, God doesn't use people to accomplish work. I, I, I really don't believe that. God could do whatever he wanted and he could do it in a snap of his fingers, a flash of light. You know, God gives us work to accomplish people. It's through all the sacrifice, it's, it's, it's through the way that we invest that God changes us and he also changes the world. It's always about people. 
God didn't so love theology that he sent Jesus. He so loved people that he sent Jesus. Everything is motivated uh, by Jesus had to do with people. And with apologies to Stephen Covey, I don't believe that you need to begin with the end in mind. You don't need to know the answer and work towards it. You just need to walk in the right direction. This was taught to me by a leader of our congregation earlier in our ministry when I said, how are we ever going to do this? This is well beyond our ability. You know, the cost, uh, the effort, even the strength of our church, this is beyond our ability to do this. And uh, a person said, well, we don't need to have all the answers. We just need to move in the right direction because when we get a little further on our path, we'll be able to see just a little further and then a little further and a little further. And eventually, it will become accomplished. We don't always need to begin with the end in mind or for fighting rarely accomplishes God's purpose. People like to fight. Churches are almost organized to fight. You know, they always take votes about everything and then there's always a winner and a loser in voting. But God doesn't want that for his people. He wants us to to be kind to each other. A kind word turns away wrath. And if it doesn't turn away wrath, it will at least confuse wrath, you know, because <laughs> people expect you to give as good as you get. You know, when, when you're abused by somebody, if you just turn it over to God, he says, you know, allow room for me to work in a contentious situation. Give God the opportunity. And you say, well, that's doing nothing. It's not doing nothing. Turn it over to God and let God uh, get involved. You know, we, we have practiced here uh, the principle of don't hesitate to de-escalate, you know, and, and to try to bring peace to a situation and, and not fight with those who want to choose fights with us. I remember in one of my books that I read um, by Norman Vincent Peale, he said, here's a principle I've learned and I live by, and it's true in business, it's also true in church, that when you fight, two things happen. You know, if you lose, you lose, but if you win, you lose too. You've made an enemy out of somebody. You know, there's, there's no fight that will break out unless you engage in the fight. Or, or this one. Patience is a virtue until it's not. You know, early in ministry, I, I've got to confess, and, and some of you were on the brunt of that, uh, I would just declare change because I knew it was right. This is what we should do. And so this is what we're going to do from now on. And, you know, um, didn't matter how upset people were. I knew it was right, and so we're just going to press on. You know, and, and I was creating a lot of that stress and, and contention uh, by my behavior. Uh, discussions are a healthy thing. Can we just have meetings where we talk about things and don't vote about things? You know, and I love that Dion's been doing that with town hall meetings and where we just come together and just share. Because when you do that, you take the emotion out of an issue. And people begin to hear that their view isn't the only view out there. They think, a lot of my friends, you know, Everybody I talk to, you know, all the phrases that they will use, when in fact, when they get in a meeting and people start sharing other, they just realize that that isn't true, that other people think differently. And most of the things that divide a congregation or break up a church have nothing to do with theology. They have to do with strategic decisions that we make together. You know, hold meetings without taking a vote. But finally, you do have to move forward. You can't just sit there and not make a decision. Finally, something has to be decided. The scripture says in two places, in Proverbs 8 and also Proverbs 24, the exact same words in both places. Solomon thought it was so important it was repeated twice. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. 
Finally, a decision has to be made and you have to move on. You can be patient for a time, but only to a point. And this one is uh, related to that. Truth matters more than winning. Uh, You know, I I was raised in a church that was contentious. And uh, I'm in a denomination that is contentious and constantly tries to outmaneuver uh, the opposition and tries to get its way, tries to be the winner and, and, and uh, point to somebody else as a loser. It's so much better, and we've learned to do this, where we would come to a meeting to decide something. We know that there are different opinions in the room about that. And it's just better to say, uh, now Mike over here, Mike, you, you don't see it the way I see it. You see it differently. Why don't you share with the voters what you see and what you think? Because ultimately, I just want the best decision. I don't want to win. I want the best. But I believe that my decision, of course, is the right one. And it always is. But I'm just, it isn't always, you know. Things can be changed. Things can be altered. Things can be adjusted. But when you say that to Mike, then Mike suddenly is confused by that. Because he expected you to shut him down. He expected you to, you know, disallow his position. And it becomes obvious to everybody that you're not threatened by other decisions, by other points of view. And you're willing to do whatever it takes as long as it's the best possible decision for the organization. The truth will set you free, Jesus said. But then after you make a decision and you commit, then don't waver. The Bible says, don't be like the wind that's driven and tossed by the wind. You go this way this time and you go that way this time and and you uh, fall back or you move forward. You know, always controlled by public opinion or by political correctness. You know, once you make a decision, stick with the decision. Joshua said to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land, would you just choose which direction you're going to go? If you want to follow the pagans, follow the pagans. If you want to follow God, then follow God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's important for us to decide. When Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem and all that it meant, No amount of persecution would turn him away from the cross. For this I was born, and for this I came. You know, why would I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, Father, give me the strength to endure this hour. And even often there were friends who said, Come on, Jesus, don't let this ever happen to you. And Jesus said to those friends, Get behind me. You want what's best for you, not what's best for the world. You know, once you make a decision... Don't waver in your decision. And this was maybe one of the more controversial things I've ever done in my ministry, at least the example I'm going to give you. Say what you mean and mean what you say. When I, when I came to St. John, and uh, we were involved in a lot of building campaigns. <laughs> I couldn't even name them all. Yeah, Todd was helping me remember some of them the other night. And um, I, I remember that we all contend and we all say, and it's especially true uh, for our children, it's especially true at our funerals, we say this is the most important thing in our life. In fact, we ask our confirmation, confirmation classes to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from this faith. That's, what we, that's the pledge that we make. We all make that pledge. And yet, we often don't live that way. You know, we nickel and dime the church. It's not, if you look at your checkbook, it's not your greatest priority in life. It doesn't represent how you truly feel about how significant it is. And it bugged me as a pastor. And and I also knew that it's in giving that we receive. And so if you're not giving, you're not receiving. And I want you to be more blessed by understanding this principle of God. My folks never got it. 
I used to, uh, my, I'd talk to my mom about tithing. And uh, mom would give out of what she had left over, which sometimes and often was nothing, uh, versus making God the first portion of what she would give. And I wrote many articles about tithing and the importance of it. And, and uh, I remember one time saying to my mom, you make this decision 52 times a year. How much better if you just made it once, just made it once, you know, to, to make that commitment. And yet it was true of the congregation. And most pastors, and I see a lot of stuff that other pastors write, they'll say, you know, if we just got 10% more this year than we got last year, we'll be black, we'll be fine. And I thought, seriously, if somebody's giving you 10 bucks a week, you want them to give you 11 bucks? Is that what you want? Or somebody's giving you a dollar, you want a dollar ten? These people are members of country clubs. Or they live in Chesterfield, or they live in Wildwood. I, I just don't think that's right. And so I, I, I ask, which a lot of pastors never do, but I'll tell you straight up, I don't mind seeing what you give. I think it's a reflection of, of where you are in your spiritual maturity. I think pastors should know that. Not because they want to dun you about it, but because they want to raise you, they want to bless you about it. And so I remember it was early in Todd, I was talking to Todd, he remembers this day, uh, and, and some of you who were there probably remember it, and some who left here probably remember it as well, uh, that, I, that I went away for about, I asked Todd to print out the list of all the giving for people, uh, what they gave last year on average per week, because a lot of people say, I give 25 bucks every week. No, you give 25 bucks when you're here, you're just not here every week. And so that, that's a different number. And so I just averaged that, and so I would say... <clears throat> I wrote letters to everybody, and I said, I want you to pray about something. And I included a Bible study on giving, because I really believe it's a key to blessing. And uh, I said, uh, you've been giving like $5 a week to the Lord. Please consider giving, please prayerfully consider giving $20 a week. Well, that's, that created a firestorm. You know, the pastor was telling me what to give. No, well, no, I was just telling you pray about something. And I want you to pray about something specific. And so after those letters hit the streets, I, I remember walking out. We were just newly into this church, and I was, I was only about halfway over to the center because the tension was so huge in the room. You know, people wanted to come, and they didn't bring pitchforks and torches, but I, I think they had them in the car. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember saying, because it was so tense in the room, I remember saying, so you got your letters. <laughs> and there was nervous laughter, nervous laughter. And I said, let me, just, let me just say something to you. We are not playing church. We are done playing church. This is serious stuff here. It's the most important thing we will ever do with our life. And so we're going to treat it that way. I don't want to hear any more about it. Let's pray. And we prayed and we began to worship. And I really didn't hear much more. I got a few phone calls, but not many. And people knew that, you know. We say what we mean, we mean what we say. Because I want you to be blessed. I want you to know what God does when you make his work your priority in life. And then finally, uh, point number 10, say thank you, Jesus. <laughs> point number 10, take your work seriously, but not yourself. You know, we're not much for titles here. We don't wear the clergy garb. We don't wear the robes. Uh, you know, we don't even say that we preach. We try to teach because I think preaching is talking down to people. I think everybody wants to be taught. I don't think everybody wants to preach. Papa, don't preach. That was a big song, you know, years ago. And, and, so, and so we just try to teach. And uh, I remember back in the day, uh, Sinaical headquarters, our denominational headquarters are in town. And so when the council of presidents comes to town or the board of directors come to town or, or there's a big meeting in town and leaders come from all over the country to town and they're here for the weekend, they will also come out, they often come out and worship here because uh, they know our reputation is a bit different and, and they're just curious. They want to come out and see the circus. And so they, they come out and, and they're, they're obvious because 
for one thing, they're wearing collars. And, and for another thing, you know, they're wearing suits. We, we don't do much of that either. And, and, uh, and they'll sit there. And, and, and after they leave, they write me letters. And some of those letters said, we just don't appreciate the way you disrespect the role of the pastor in your church, Steve. You should hold the pastor's office a little with a, a, a little higher standards than you do. You'll let anybody do a call to worship. You'll let anybody lead your people through a confession of sins. You'll let anybody bless the people at the end of the service. And those are roles reserved for the pastor. I'll say, show me in the Bible where those are roles reserved for the pastor. Because I frankly just don't see it. You know, all God's people should forgive each other. All God's people should demonstrate, you know, all the values that God demonstrates. And beside, respect for me in this place is not a problem from having too little. It's a problem from having too much. So let me ask you, why don't, why don't you believe this? Why is this so hard for us to accept? Oh, I'm sorry. The first this, Jesus is the poster child for this truth. And this, this is essential that we discuss this. It, the idea that God would use weakness to bring strength, the idea that God would bring foolishness uh, to bring us wisdom, that's, that's exemplified by the way he sent our Savior Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. He was, he was placed in a manger. Uh, and the Bible in the previous verses of the same chapter says, you know, we preach Jesus Christ to the Jews that's a stumbling block. They believed that their savior would come like King David and he would rule and he would make them a great nation in the world again like David did. And to the, to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. They expected Alexander the Great, but we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. But this is how God has brought about our salvation. The Bible says, he made the one who knew no sin, Jesus, to take on all of our sin, so that we might take on his perfection. So he made a swap with us. He said, give me your sin and I will die. I will suffer the punishment you deserve so that you might receive the forgiveness that, that I can offer. That's how, that's how God brought about our salvation. And so this principle is even demonstrated in our salvation. It's also demonstrated in our lives. The question remains, why don't we accept it? What keeps us from accepting this principle that despite your weakness, despite your foolishness, despite your sinfulness, despite your past, God wants to do great things for you? I think there are two things that do this. I think, first of all, we dismiss those who succeed as gifted. You say, I'm, I'm not gifted like Billy Joel. I'm not gifted like Pastor Hart. Everybody is gifted. Everybody is special in God's sight. You are not the result of a biological function. You know, God caused a cell from your mom and a cell from your dad to combine in such a way. There are millions of possibilities, but God caused you to be born in the way that you were born, and you are special, and you have something special to do. It may not be in a public way, but nevertheless, God wants you to be great. Uh, the reason that we don't accept that for ourselves and dismiss that as we because we think somebody else is gifted but I'm not gifted in that way and so we dismiss the possibility that God could use us or secondly we just settle for who we are it's kind of like a badge of honor diversity is the big PC thing now you know uh, we're all different and I'm who I am and I'm okay with that well I'm okay with who you are too I'm just not okay that you stay there I, I think like God has given us all plenty of opportunities to grow in our influence in our sphere uh, of relationships. And you have that opportunity as well. Again, it may not be a public thing, but it can be an incredible thing. Some of the best stories that I ever read, some of the best stories that I ever see on the news are about a, a cafeteria worker who is changing the lives of children. 
one person at a time. Or Mother Teresa, who is just in kindness taking people off the street and ministering to them. She didn't have any illusions of greatness, but God made her great. We all have those opportunities. Don't dismiss that and don't just accept your position as the way God has made you and make peace with it. God still wants to do great things through all of us. Now, Paul said his strength was made perfect in his weakness. In fact, he said, I'll boast about my weaknesses because then you can see how God has used me. Uh, This is a a different guy. Do you recognize him? This is Billy Joel, now who is 68 years old, as opposed to the other guy who is 28 years old. Uh, Billy Joel has lost all of his hair. He said, I always hated my hair, so it left me. He... Like, like all my wives, he said. <laughs> he uh, was once asked by Matt Lauer, is there anything you lack or wish you had accomplished in your life? He goes, a, a long-term relationship with a woman would have been a good thing. Uh, although he and Christy Brinkley are still very close and supportive of each other. But uh, Billy said an interesting thing as he looked back on his life and, and the fact that he was uh, blessed to become great in doing what he did with his craft. He said... Out of respect for the things I was never destined to do, I have learned that my strengths were a result of my weaknesses, and my success was due to my failure, and my style is directly related to my limitations. So I'm not saying deny your weaknesses, I'm just saying own them, and and be eager to see how God can use them. Don't deny them. But just allow the Lord the opportunity to use you as you are so that you will forever be grateful and forever realize that it's God working through you. Billy Joel has a line that could be a tagline for my life and my ministry. He said, you may be right, I may be crazy, but it just might be a lunatic you're looking for. You know, you, you may be crazy. You may have all those flaws, but it just may be those flaws that God wants to use in a powerful way. Amen.